My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. Everybody is in for a treat today. I am sitting here talking to Mr. Gary Williamson, and Gary has quite an interesting history uh, when it comes to snakes uh, and and what he's seen and done uh, with these snakes, and then also the people uh, that that he's interacted with and he's grown close to over the years are some of the big names that many people will recognize uh, in the snake world. And it's very timely that we have this discussion because he just published a book, and we'll talk about the book later in this episode, but he just published a book on really one of the kind of icons in you know the history of snakes and snake ecology and and you know really everything to do uh with snakes so um i'll leave the book there for now because we will talk about it in depth but welcome to snake talk gary it's good to have you thank you chris my pleasure so I like to start off just kind of introducing our guest uh, to the audience, and you can do a better job introducing yourself than I can. So, um, and, and we don't necessarily need to dive into your history yet. We're going to do that. But I'm just curious, uh, you know, tell the audience who you are and, and what you're currently doing today in, in the snake world and uh, things like, you know, where it is you're sitting, where you live. Well... I uh, live in Chesapeake, Virginia. I'm a retired Virginia State Park Ranger. And when I was younger, I uh, got an interest in snakes at an early age, like most snake aficionados do. I had a uh, grandfather in Western Pennsylvania who liked the uh, out of doors. He didn't like snakes that much, but anyway, I had a curiosity about uh, looking for snakes, you know, mainly harmless snakes. We had a little trout stream that flowed by our house, and uh, I had a knack for finding little ringneck snakes or northern water snakes or queen snakes. But my grandpa was of the uh, opinion that the only good snake was a dead snake, and it, when he was younger, there were bounties on snakes in Western Pennsylvania. And I think he told me when he was young, he was born in 1889. So I'm talking about my childhood in the 1950s. He told me that he would shoot uh, water snakes, which he called moccasins. And there weren't any venomous aquatic snakes in that area. And that was just the way it was. And when I was looking around, I sometimes found a, a large water snake. And I say, Grandpa, there's a water snake out in the creek. And he, he had a 22 Savage rice, rifle or a, a automatic pistol, a ricing that he would shoot. And he was very accurate. But 
I, I just put up with that because I felt, hey, that, that just the way he was. He liked to hunt and fish. But I just had a knack for finding snakes, and I was always interested in them. And then after he died in 1955, we moved back to Virginia, and we met a, uh, a young couple uh, that were in the Navy. And this gentleman was a jet pilot at the Oceana Naval Air Station in Virginia Beach. He was from Oklahoma. His name was Floyd Sykes, and he was probably in his mid to late 20s, and I was just a 13, 14-year-old kid. But we started talking about interest, and we found out that we both had an interest in snakes. So he he would fly his jet around Dismal Swamp and the coastal areas of Virginia and North Carolina and indicate areas that we could explore. And on the weekends, he would pick me up and uh, we would drive out to these areas and explore. So that's how I really got interested in looking for snakes in Virginia. And then he got transferred to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, and I kind of picked it up on my own. Great. Well, one thing I think that's really interesting about that kind of chronology of, of growing up is, first of all, you know, we've had some podcasts on, uh, you know, related to the topic, say, of fear in snakes and, and, you know, concepts like, is that something that's kind of innate in humans? Is it part of our genetic makeup? Uh, you know, maybe as some type of like predator avoidance strategy from way back when, or, uh, is it a learned, uh, type of thing? And, uh, and, and it's interesting that as a very young child, you know, you were taught that, you know, the way you deal with these snakes is with, you know, a savage 22 rifle or, or uh, what have you, but you didn't, that didn't imprint on you. And that's not how you interacted with snakes uh, as you, as you grew up. So that, that's just interesting kind of, uh, kind of note there. Uh, the other thing I'd note, you know, that, that your history in Pennsylvania there, um, by the time this podcast airs, uh, we will, uh, it will, we'll have an episode that will be up on, uh, rattlesnakes in particular in Pennsylvania and kind of go covering the history and how they have this fairly unique management system uh, compared to a lot of States, you know, where there's legal harvest, but it's very regulated. And, and the, the story of how timber rattlesnake populations were really recovered in, in that state using these, these approaches. So anyways, stay tuned for that. Um, so, so you grew up and, uh, you know, it sounds like the early part of your childhood was in Pennsylvania and you were, uh, you know, out seeing snakes all, all the time. Uh, generally did your, your family support it. It sounds like some of your family members were shooting them, but did they kind of foster this interest you had or did it, was it kind of always dismissed as, uh, you know, something not important? Well, my mother and father did not, uh, keep me from, uh, you know, looking for snakes. Uh, I guess at that time in my life, I was young enough. I didn't come upon a copperhead or a timber rattlesnake. And probably that was good because I, I didn't have a guide, a field guide or anything, but I, I didn't know what non-venomous snakes were around. But my mother, my mother loved uh, wildlife, but my, my father didn't have that much interest. But it was my, it was my grandfather. My grandpa Clyde, who I mentioned in my book, The Caulfield Letters, about 
some of my childhood uh, memories. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. So then you, so you leave Pennsylvania though, when you're, when he passed and you ended up moving uh, to Virginia. And um, so you have this interest in, in snakes and, and people oftentimes face, you know, these kind of crossroads in life and make decisions about how to advance, you know, what type of career say to develop. Um, and, and oftentimes people like us who are interested in snakes, the decision we make is, do we want to, you know, make a living? Do we want to try to make a career say as a biologist or a zookeeper or something related to snakes or are we going to kind of go another direction have a different career than have the the interest whatever that might be in snakes as kind of a side activity um and, and you said that you're a retired state park ranger is that accurate yes that's correct and did your did your interest in snakes uh have anything to do with you kind of pursuing that career line or how did how did you getting into that line of work how did that come about well, back in the uh, early 70s, there was a hiring freeze in the federal government. I always wanted to be a national park service ranger. I tried to get in the national park service, but there was a hiring freeze in President Ford's administration in the mid-70s. And fortunately, I had a friend who was active in this uh, Audubon Society in Norfolk, and she was working for the city of Chesapeake in their parks and recreation department. And they were getting ready to open a park and actually build a park from, this, from the ground up. And she let me know that they were interested in hiring four park rangers. So I applied and I was hired in 1975 as one of the four park rangers for Northwest River Park. And during my 19 years there, I uh, got a reputation of being somewhat of a naturalist. Uh, I would lead bird hikes and wildflower walks and, and do snake lectures. And that was one of the perks in my job, I felt, was uh, doing a, a lecture on, on snakes. So I would get a little collection that I would keep temporarily and then during the course of the spring or summer give several snake lectures at that park and they were well attended i remember i had 250 people one time and the newspaper covered it and uh, i even had some tv news people come and cover one of my talks so i enjoyed that i felt like i was doing a service using my hobby in in that way yeah, and so you spent 19 years at this park. That's great. Did uh, so? Did you after that? Did you go on and work at other parks, or was that the extent of your your park service career? Uh, that was Chesapeake's Northwest River Park was considered a city park, even though okay. the re retirement plan is like the state retirement plan, and I transferred into state parks. And I was at Kipta Peak State Park on the eastern shore, which is really noted for birds. And I would sometimes lead bird, bird trips there. And I was over there several years. And then another park I worked at, False Cape State Park in the southern part of Virginia Beach, 
which is right on the North Carolina Virginia line. It's just a fabulous area for wildlife. I could see a cottonmouth down there any day of the year. And it, it was a great place for bird migration. So I enjoyed that as well. So all of the parks I worked at, I was able to use my natural history hobbies as part of being a park ranger. Uh, and several times my title was chief ranger interpreter where I would give programs. Yeah, that must be a great area to see a cottonmouth. I've never actually been to that part of, of the world. Um, but obviously that's kind of the northern limits on the eastern side of the cottonmouth range. That's yeah. you're right where, uh, you know, their distribution stops, despite everybody thinking any snake they see in the water wherever in Maine <laughs> is a <laughs> cottonmouth uh, that, you know, extreme Southeast Virginia would be the, the kind of limits to their distribution. So that's, that's uh, really great. And so you developed this career that uh, is, is linked to the environment and working um, on, you know, kind of conservation, probably uh, in administration, maybe some security related to parks, but, you know, a lot of natural history. So it's, it's in the same realm as snakes and you even had some opportunities to do some snake related programs, which is, which is great. Um, and, but at the same time, you maintained an interest in snakes in your kind of on the hobby side uh, of what you did. And, and I don't want to get in the moment into like some of the people that we're going to talk about and all of that, but, but how did you, like, what was the hobby? Was the hobby keeping many snakes in cages at your house or, um, you know, what I know about you, the hobby was really driven by like going to various places and looking for snakes in the wild. How, how would you classify kind of the hobby side of your interest relative to snakes? Uh, I never kept a large collection of snakes. I, while I was a park ranger, I would uh, collect enough temporarily just to give my programs, and then I'd turn them loose where I found them. Uh, I had a pet king snake for about three or four years, uh, when I was a teenager, his name was Rex, and he was really a nice king snake. And then when I was at uh, Northwest River Park in Chesapeake, I found a nice uh, king snake, uh, called him Jake, Jake the Snake. And <laughs> he lived for about 11 years, and I took him to schools and used him in my programs. Um, so it was, it was more of just uh, going out and seeing them in the wild and maybe occasionally uh, helping uh, a biologist in a program like I did uh, some of the early telemetry work with Dr. Alan Savitsky when he was at Old Dominion University. And he and his grad student, Chris Peterson, uh, tracked canebrake rattlesnakes at Northwest River Park for several years. And I helped in that as well. And then it was transferred to a, a Navy installation in Chesapeake for another 10 or 12 years. So they got a lot of data on canebrake rattlesnakes in southeastern Virginia in the early 90s into the early 2000s. So you did a great deal of things locally, but even back at in that time, you were traveling to look for snakes as well. You were coming down to places, you know, say like in down here in the Southeast and South Carolina in particular, 
maybe some other locations in the Southeast, maybe you're going to the Southwest. Is that, is that when you started kind of traveling uh, to look for snakes as well? Well, my first traveling trip other than uh, to Southern South Carolina in the mid 60s, I did go out West. I had two cousins in Colorado and in the mid-60s, I took a bus ride out to the Denver area and hooked up with my two cousins. And they took me out to a prairie dog town near the town of Platteville, Colorado. And we found some prairie rattlesnakes, which was really exciting. And then for a long weekend on that same trip, we drove down to the Huachuca Mountains in southern Arizona. It was springtime, so... the the herping activity wasn't that great, but we did see the Huachuca Mountains and the Sonoran Desert, and it was just a thrill to see those areas that were made famous by the late Carl Caulfield in mm. his writings. Well, that is a, a good transition because I do want to talk about some of the people that you were interacting in those days, in particular, Carl, and... And then we'll tie together kind of your hobby and interest in snakes um, and, uh, you know, Carl and, and, you know, what he did in his career, tie that together by, you know, talking about your book and how that came together. So, but let's start off. Um, so you knew Carl and, and I'd like to just talk about uh, who he was and, and kind of what he did uh, in his career. So, I'm assuming many of our audience know, but why don't you just take a few minutes and, and talk to us about, first of all, just who who was he and, and talk to us a little bit about his career. What was it that he did that was such a contribution to snakes? Well, Carl Caulfield was born in uh, Philadelphia, I think in 1911. And when he was in his 20s, I believe he... Uh, worked for the uh, um, American Museum of Natural History, and he got involved with some of the older herpetologists of the day. And uh, in the 1930s, I believe, the Staten Island Zoo was uh, being built, and he fortunately got the position of curator of reptiles. So he had a dream job that he really loved, and he he stayed with the Staten Island Zoo until he passed away in July of 1974. In the meantime, I think he wrote three books. One was called uh, Snakes and Their Ways. That was written in the 1930s. And then his most popular books came out later on. He had one called Snakes and Snake Hunting uh, in 1957. And then he followed that with Snakes to Keeper in the Kept from 1969. And these two later books were so popular with young snake fanciers and herpetologists that he just really made a name for himself. And uh, especially people like me in my 20s, it just, uh, when I read the book, I thought, I've got to see these areas. So a friend of mine, David Jones from Norfolk, he and I took a trip down to Jasper County, South Carolina, near the town of Ridgeland, and we got permission to go hunt on the Okatee Preserve, which Caulfield made famous in his book, 
snakes and snake hunting. It was called the Saga of Sandy Hill. And David and I drove up to this campsite and there were a bunch of men out there camping at this pavilion. And I asked one of the guys, are, are you all snake hunters? And he said, yeah, we are. And I said, have you had any luck? And he said, yeah, we've found a few diamondback rattlesnakes and corn snakes and king snakes. And I said, wow, you guys must have somebody here who knows all the hot spots. And he gestured over to an older man over there. He said, yeah, Mr. Caulfield over there knows some good spots. So yeah. I, was, I was flabbergasted. So I got out and met him and introduced myself. And I even had my copy of Snakes and Snake Hunting. And he signed it right there. And I think it's the only copy that was ever signed by him at Sandy Hill, the campsite at Okatee. So after that, we kind of hit it off and he uh, uh, took me and my buddy under his wing, so to speak. He was in his mid-50s then and my buddy was about maybe 17 or 18. I was about 20. And he drove us around and showed us areas where he had found diamondback rattlesnakes and and one of the spots that we stopped was uh, one of my favorite snake stores. And I'll tell you that at the end of the uh, podcast. But anyway, he he was uh, very, very uh, much like a, uh, a mentor, a professor, a teacher. And he took us under his wing and he appreciated our interest and enthusiasm. And, and, and the same with him. He was just a real outgoing person. Uh, person no pretension no pretension about him he was just just a regular guy he's kind of you know like a father figure yeah i mean i would credit in some ways the publishing of that his snake hunting book is really kind of one of the the first big things that started uh you know this this just interest around the country and around the world in looking for snakes in the wild. And, um, I mean, that continues to, to grow today. I mean, but back then in the times you're talking about, it was a very kind of small group, uh, of, of people. And a lot of these names are, are, are names that, that people might recognize. So, so Carl worked at the Staten Island zoo but as part of his job there, uh, he was afforded time to, to go on trips, say, uh, like the trips to Okatee um, or other places, the Southwest, for example. And, and that, that was considered part of his job. Or is that right? Or did he have to yes. do yes. that kind of outside? Uh, in the letters that are in my book, he will share. He says, well, I can't meet you this time. I'm going to a, a herpetological meeting out in Salt Lake City, Utah, or my wife and I are going uh, uh, to Texas to attend another meeting. So he did travel around a lot, and he had a lot of uh, herpetological contacts. And mm-hmm. he, he was a prolific uh, letter writer, and I felt honored that he liked to write letters to me, and I enjoyed writing letters to him. So did you ever have the opportunity to go uh, visit him up at the zoo in Staten Island? Yes. Uh, I visited him several times at the Staten Island Zoo, and he had me over at his house, uh, stayed overnight, and his wife cooked a delicious dinner. He had a pet owl that he would let fly around in his house. It was a European (laughs) scopes owl, kind of like a little screech owl. And he gave me a personal tour of the zoo behind the scenes. He showed me all the 
the he was so proud of his rattlesnake collection. It had pro they probably had at the time in the mid '60s the best rattlesnake collection in maybe in the world, not only the United States. I think for a number of years he had every rattlesnake known to the United States on exhibit at the zoo, and he even had duplicates, backup snakes, in case one passed passed on. But uh, yeah. He, he, he really loved his rattlesnakes. I, and how did he, you talked a lot about him personally, and I want to dive into that a little bit more, but like from your time seeing him either say your visits to the zoo or seeing him with staff in the field, I mean, did you get a feel for, uh, you know, how he ran uh, that department within the zoo, what, what he was like in kind of that work setting, working with colleagues, working with people who, who, who worked for him? I think he was very well respected and well liked. Uh, the fact that he would go on these trips with his uh, reptile keepers told me a lot because, you know, a lot of times subordinates don't socialize with the boss that often, you know, you know it's mm -hmm. but he was very outgoing and uh, he, he was a, a, a really a, a positive person, had a great personality, had, had a good sense of humor. He'd tell some funny stories and, I enjoyed the times I was able to be in the field with him or visit him in Staten Island. Yeah. How did you ever get a feel for, you know, with his uh, running the department there at the zoo or in the reptile house? Did they, was he very hands-on? Was he very kind of more macro management, meaning he kind of set up good people and had big systems to maintain all this? Or was he really um, somebody who was in there wanting to say, handle the snakes or make, uh, you know, a lot of the decisions say about how they were displayed or how they were cared for. Uh, did you have a feel for how he worked in that regard? Well, I think he had a real uh, love for the uh, specimens on exhibit. And he, you know, he was meticulous about how they were to be exhibited. I don't think he really micromanaged, but uh, he had good, good staff. He had a good uh, general curator and Bill Somerville who went down to Okatee with him on occasion. And his chief reptile keeper, Carl Alamonte, was hands-on, the, probably the best reptile keeper in the country. And uh, in some of the letters he had even mentioned, he says, if I have a troublesome snake that doesn't want to feed, I let Carl Alamonte work with him. The Alamonte method usually works. So, mm -hmm. and, and his other keepers, uh, Zig Lazinski, uh, Bob Zappalordi, Jimmy Bukowski, they all uh, were there for many, many years and did a lot of trips with, with Carl. So I think they all got along real well as a staff. Yeah. And so these trips, these snake hunting trips that, you know, like I said, I think the book that came from some of that really helped were kind of some of the foundations of what we're seeing today with this group of what people call field herpers or, um, but, um, so were these trips fueled by the zoo, meaning say, uh, you know, collecting specimens, live specimens that could be displayed, or was it, uh, you know, just a, a, were they gathering data that was going to be used or just kind of enrichment or, or staff development to, to get people in the field? I mean, what were the purposes of these trips from Carl's perspective? I think it uh, was from 
many, many facets. Um, it was vacation time. They would go down to Okatee in usually late March to early April. And it was during the spring break, usually from colleges and schools. So his younger staff members could, could go as well, you know, if the families uh, had some vacation time. So he was always trying to replenish his stock and they would even take stock back and turn loose. And, and maybe, maybe at that time we weren't aware how that was uh, maybe detrimental to turning uh, snakes loose in the wild, maybe not in the same exact spot where they were found because there was no telemetry studies at that time. So nobody knew that maybe snakes just wandered and wandered and wandered. So he would uh, catch a bunch of snakes and just take maybe a few back. He didn't over collect like some people thought, but uh, his, his uh, reptile keepers, had uh, a nice code of ethics. They didn't. They didn't overcollect. They took care of the environment. He had a nice uh, conservation ethic where he instilled. And in I said, you know, when you turn over a log, turn it back. Turn over a rock to look. Turn it back the way it was, because other organisms live under these places. We don't want to say rape the habitat like a lot of commercial collectors were doing. Yeah. Huh. So, so you would typically, he would go down, I'm assuming over the years after that, you know, first chance encounter that, you know, you would join him on a number of these trips and, um, and, and uh, I'm talking specifically about Okatee now. So you'd go down to South Carolina and you'd kind of set up like a camp. Is that right? Or would you yeah. guys typically work out of like hotel motel rooms? Both. We had a camp, we had permission at that time to camp at a place called Sandy Hill. And the Okatee Plantation was primarily a quail hunting plantation. And it was 50,000 acres. And it only had, the club only had 20 members. They were all millionaires. So it was very exclusive. But they, they, didn't, they didn't care much for big diamondback rattlesnakes that be crawling around. And uh, so the members felt okay about... Uh, some uh, collecting going on and removing some of the rattlesnakes. Gotcha. And so you'd set up this camp and you'd kind of work out of that and you would, what was kind of a routine? Like what would you guys like uh, an average day of snake hunting um, in Okatee? Uh, you know, what would that be like? When would you get up and would you, you know, camp cook? Would you spend all day out? How, how would you do it? Were you out at night? Well, um, in the spring down there, it's pretty cool and windy in uh, late March and early April. You have some days when you have some humidity and warm temperatures, but more often than not, it's just, say, 65 to 75 degrees. And we would just hunt the burned fields. They do controlled burns down there in the longleaf uh, wiregrass community, and that keeps the, uh, the, the brush down. And, and you, can, you can see hundreds and hundreds of feet when you're walking through these nice, mature longleaf pine woods and you would gravitate toward stump holes and logs and that way you would uh, be able to luck out and maybe find some snakes that way so we would start out you know we'd maybe cook a little breakfast and nine o'clock or so once the uh, sun warmed things up a bit we would start out and i can recall my late friend ziggy lazinski one of caulfield's uh, zookeepers 
his hand was like a thermostat. He could put his hand down on the burned forest floor and say, well, Gary, the ground's too cool. We need to wait a little bit or just hunt in some open areas. Or if he would say, Gary, the ground's too hot. We need to hunt in a shaded, uh, wooded area right now. He could he had a sense for uh, when the snakes would be out or be under. So we would go to different areas that were burned and uh, we'd split up. A lot of times we'd just go two at a time. But sometimes if it was a big area, there'd be four of us. We'd spread out and call each other when we'd see a snake. And uh, I, I like to carry a eight millimeter movie camera. And I took a lot of movies of the guys back in the day. So okay. a lot of times we just make a sandwich and carry it with us and a canteen of water. We wouldn't break at lunchtime, but we would go right up until uh, late in the day, five thirty, six o'clock, especially if the weather was right and we were seeing things. I remember would- one day Carl Alamani saw eight different diamondback rattlesnakes in one day. Wow. And so what was Carl Caulfield like in the field? Like when you were, say you was the two of you physically searching a, a longleaf savannas type stand. Um, what was he like specifically to snake hunt with? Well, he was a, a great field person. He knew all, he knew a lot of plants. He knew a lot of birds. He knew the lay of the land. He would teach us things like, you know, if you're looking for diamondback rattlesnakes, you want to go where you see the bracken fern. It's kind of a flat top leaf fern and where you see hickory. And it's it's high ground. Diamondbacks like that and corn snakes like that. He says, if you go down toward the slope of the field, you're going to see cinnamon fern and uh, maybe sweet gum trees, red maple. And you might see canebrake rattlesnakes and king snakes there. So he helped us like that. He didn't have the stamina that we had because even when I first met him, when he was in his 50s, he was probably starting to slow down with his emphysema that would, and uh, the cancer and all that would do him in 10 years later. So he would walk a ways and then he would rest and he, he smoked constantly. So that was... You know, he was a heavy cigarette smoker, but it was fun to be in the field with because he would tell us stories. Uh, he, I remember one time he said right from our campsite, he said, I could throw a rock in each compass point. And, and at one time I found a diamondback rattlesnake there. <laughs> he started going there in the early 50s. So each year uh, he, he was slowing down. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. So was he uh, particularly keyed into the rattlesnakes? Obviously, the corn snakes there are very special. Uh, you might speak to that as well. But was he especially tuned in to rattlesnakes or was he generally interested in everything? How, how would you classify his interest in the snakes 
uh, down at Okatee. As far as snakes, I think the diamondback rattlesnake was his favorite and the canebrake rattlesnake was right up next to it. I remember he once told me, he said, you know, I like canebrake rattlesnakes as much as diamondbacks because they're so pretty, especially down here. They're kind of pinkish, really. And I, I've seen very few pinkish ones in Virginia. They're more more of a yellow. And uh, he said his favorite canebrakes came from the New Orleans area down in Louisiana, were really especially pretty. But he liked the high ground, and he found more diamondbacks that way. So he found probably less uh, uh Water snakes, king snakes, and uh, but more uh, cane breaks and diamondbacks. He didn't peel bark. He wasn't interested in the little little. He he liked his rattlesnakes. I think. Gotcha. I think. Uh, back in the sixties, there was this. Uh, everybody knows the famous rock and roll band, The Doors. Jim Morrison. He called himself the Lizard King, but I I think we could have called. Carl Caulfield, the rattlesnake king, because he sure like rattlesnakes. <laughs> he sure likes rattlesnakes. Great. Yeah. Well, so later that uh, I mean, the whole low country of South Carolina is known as a kind of a, a mecca or a hot spot for snakes in general. But um, that area obviously became very uh, popular f- relative to corn snakes and, yes. and the color in particular. Um, and and so you might describe what an Okatee corn snake looks like, but what did, did you guys, when you were down there, that would have been before this became such a craze, I would assume. And, and did, did Carl recognize, or did all of you guys recognize how special these corn snakes were? And did he have a lot of interest in that? Or was it more just focused on the rattlesnakes? Mainly the rattlesnakes, but we loved to catch corn snakes because they, they were so beautiful in that Jasper County area. And herpticulture wasn't really started yet. So nobody was really breeding snakes back in, in the 60s, to my recollection. So, But the Okatee corns, they had uh, yellow and orange on the sides. And uh, the, the red was beautiful and the wide black rings around the red blotches just set them out they, they were stunning looking they were just really really bright and my late friend Ziggy Lazinski was a real fanatic on corn snakes and he liked to see everybody's corn snake because he was looking for a special one he saw one some years ago at Okatee that was uh, captured uh, at a burn field that was still being burned and he said it had a lot of yellow on the sides and the bright red and the broad black rings and he said it was stunning so he was looking at everybody's corn snake to see if he could find another one like that and uh, i found one and uh, i took movies of it and ziggy wasn't with me when he saw the movies he said oh that's the one i wanted <laughs> and you didn't catch it <laughs> well i did but i, I didn't I, uh he was up in staten island new york and i was in virginia beach virginia so he wasn't yeah. with me that particular trip but yeah they were really pretty snakes and ziggy would go through everybody's bags of corn snakes and he could say oh that's a chelsea corn or that's a good hope corn other plantations or that looks like a jersey corn or that looks like a florida corn he could just scope them out how so how did do you know how Carl originally got access to the plantation? Uh, I'm assuming, like you said, it's a quail plantation. People probably didn't like the rattlesnakes so much. They probably actually welcomed somebody coming and 
collecting them. Um, it, it, as I asked this question, it's probably also worth mentioning to our audience that these are private properties. And so um, there is, you know, these plantations still exist, but they're not places you can just go to. But, but how did Carl end up getting access to these, these places originally? Do you know? It's my understanding he had a uh, friend that worked at the American Museum of Natural History, and they were getting uh, taxidermy-mounted diamondback rattlesnakes from Jasper County, South Carolina. To There, there were big rattlesnakes down there, and this friend of his said that there's a plantation down there called the Okatee Club, and that's where these are coming from. So he, I guess on his own and maybe with his same friend, went down there uh, in the early 1950s and uh, met the superintendent. His name was uh, Ann Burton Bass. He was a grandfather type. He was probably in his 60s or 70s at that time. And he's mentioned in the book Snakes and Snake Hunting. And after that, he gave Carl Caulfield permission to hunt on the Okatee Club. And then after it got so popular, and sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, they just shut it down. There was just too much vandalism going on and drinking and maybe uh, dope smoking and whatnot and just trashing the areas. And uh, some camp campers got out of hand. So all of those plantations sort of just cut it out. Nobody. And maybe they were afraid also of liability regarding somebody getting snake. Yeah. It, it kind of came to an end in the early 90s. But in the 60s and 70s, it was awesome. Yeah, great. Well, I want to I want to dive into your book in some depth. And a lot of what we've been talking about is actually in your book in one form or another. But before we do that, um, I just wanted to talk about – so South Carolina wasn't the only place that Carl would go. And so um, – what were some of the other places that, that he would go uh, snake hunting? And did you also go to some of those places with him or were you primarily connecting with him uh, down in the low country of South Carolina? Primarily the low country of South Carolina and Northeast and North Carolina, a little bit in Virginia. Um, other places that he had gone before I uh, met him uh, was uh, Southern Arizona in the Huachuca and Chiricahua Mountains. And in the 1940s, he did some uh, snake hunting on those sky islands, on those alpine forms, the Willard's rattlesnake, the banded rock rattlesnake, and the Price's rattlesnake. And he uh, secured some of them and, and wrote some papers on them. And I think he might have had some records of uh, them giving birth. So he, he did a, little pi a lot of pioneer work on those species. He did some uh, uh, herping in Texas, as well as in uh, Okeechobee in Florida, and the uh, the Everglades and uh, Okefenokee in Georgia, and the uh, the Mount Adirondack Mountains in New York, the mountains up there for timber rattlesnakes, and then the New Jersey pine barrens. Hmm. And the one the one uh, trip that I had that I enjoyed the most with him was down in uh, Northeast and North Carolina in June of 1969. And in a one weekend, we found 20 different species of snakes, including some of those beautiful red pygmy rattlesnakes. Oh, yeah, that's and, great. And that's that's in my book. Yeah. Did uh, 
Did Carl ever do any kind of international trips uh, when he was working at the zoo uh, that were kind of specifically focused on uh, snake hunting, or was he really focused kind of on primarily on North America? I think primarily on uh, North America. He had contacts all over the world. I remember he wanted to send one of the red pygmy rattlesnakes we collected uh, to a zoo in uh, Germany. He had a friend who was a curator out there. And also he had a curator friend at the San Diego Zoo. I think it was, his name was Chuck Shaw. He's passed away now. And I think he sent him a red pygmy rattlesnake. But as far as him traveling the globe and herping, no, I don't think so. He, 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 he wasn't up to, you know, traipsing around for long distances because his health just would not let him do that. So if he could drive up to an area he, he was fine. Even the, the last few times I was in the field with him in North Carolina, we did more birding than snake hunting. And we would just drive around and stop and look look at a spot like an old abandoned house that might had some uh, cover boards or tin. And we'd just get out and just do a little bit of walking. But he, he didn't do a whole lot of walking in his later years. Gotcha. But he did have a time uh, when he was back in his prime in his younger years where he did quite a bit of real active snake hunting or oh, was yeah. he always kind of, uh, um, you know. Oh, yes. He uh, he uh, traveled up into the New York timber rattlesnake dens on many occasions and he explored the New Jersey uh, pine barrens a lot. He also uh, explored those swamps around i think syracuse new york where the eastern massasagas were so he did uh when he was younger before i met him because when i met him he was in uh his 50s late 50s because i was about 20 and he died he died when he was 63 gotcha well so let's let's transition and talk a little bit about your book and the book is titled the Caulfield letters and uh why don't you kind of give us just first of all kind of the concept of the book and you know and and the title really reflects the whole concept it's kind of a unique and kind of interesting uh you know structure for the book so well he and i began (laughs) corresponding in 1965 and uh I never saved the copies of the letters I wrote to him. I wish I had, but somehow I had the presence of mind to save all of his letters. And I have about 60 letters or so that he wrote me from 1965 to 1974. The, the latter letters in the last couple of years of his life were handwritten because he was in sit. His health was going downhill. So, uh, I saved these letters and I thought, well, maybe I can make a book out of these and just, you know, have the letters published. And, uh, but I, I just never did. And, and then, um, about four years ago, four, yeah, I met, uh, Dr. Chuck Smith, Dr. Charles Smith of Wofford College. He was out in Western North Carolina with my friend, uh, Alan Cameron, whom I think, you know, I do. And, uh, Alan was showing us some uh, timber rattlesnake gestation sites in western North Carolina. And uh, Chuck was up there. And I happened to have 
a, a three ring binder of all my Caulfield letters with me because I wanted to show them to Alan and I also showed it to my friend Jeff Bean. And, and Chuck only lived an hour away in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he was going home for the night. And I said, Chuck, do you want to look at these Caulfield letters of mine tonight? And if you have time, I said, oh, yeah. So he took them home. He stayed up in the wee hours and read them all. And the next day, he said, Gary, this needs to be a book. And, he, and then Chuck Smith told me about the uh, Chiricahua Desert Museum out in the uh, uh, Rodeo, New Mexico, where he would go out in the summer and, and get involved with a lot of their expos and, and meetings and all and do some work with uh, Bob Ashley, the director. And Bob Ashley is the, uh, he has his own publishing company called Eco Publishing Company. And uh, Chuck said, I think Bob will go for a, a book on, on these Caulfield letters. So I went out there uh, in 2017 and talked with Bob Ashley, and he liked the idea. And then uh, last year, we really got on board with it. And Dr. Gordon Shewitt, my main editor, called me, you know, long distance uh, a couple of times a week. And during the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, he said, Gary, if you could come out here uh, for like the month of June, I have a window where we can probably put this together. So I did. I drove out myself 2,200 miles, and we pretty much wrote the book that month. And Chuck Smith did the graphics and the layout on his computer, and Bob uh, Ashley signed off on it. And we got pictures and put it all together, and uh, it got published uh, late uh, in 2020. And uh, that's it. So I'm real proud of the book. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Yeah, and it's it is an interesting book because it centers around this concept of the letters uh, that you talk about, but obviously it's written with a, just a lot of narrative. So the in my mind, the letters almost form kind of the backbone of the book, mm -hmm. but then you build around that this very kind of rich history and story around Carl and the places like Okatee that we're talking about, and uh, you know it's just it's, I think it's really great. Anybody who's interested in you know kind of that history component uh, of snakes and snake hunting. Uh, and then also interested in just learning a little bit more about Carl and, and getting kind of a, a little bit of a deeper perspective, maybe a little more personal perspective on, you know, how we might communicate. I mean, it's just great. I, I ended up reading the entire book in one sitting on an airplane and, uh, you know, you sent me a copy. I was, I was right. uh, thankful for that. And I, I literally read the entire thing on one flight. And so uh, it, it was great. But so, you know, as I mentioned, the, the letters are kind of the backbone to the book. But there's a lot of uh, lot built around those letters uh, in terms of history and information. And so I guess with the letters, what's kind of the is there like a trajectory in your mind, you know, so these letters were over 
the course of multiple years. And you already kind of mentioned uh, that, you know, towards the end, the you know, the letters very obviously kind of took on a different tone and approach, but do you, have you ever thought about that chronology of the letters and, and, and just how do you think about that and how the letters changed over time and that personal uh, interaction you had? Well, what surprised me about Carl Caulfield was how interested he was in birds. And I'm, I'm a birder. I, I keep a life list and uh, I've gone on, Christmas bird counts. I've done I've done volunteer bird surveys for the Fish and Wildlife Service, and uh, I wish we would have had more time to do more birding together. But during the lat- latter part of his life, we uh, we would talk and look at birds just as much as we would the herps. And and my last uh, vision of Carl, uh, the last time I saw him, we were on an observation platform at the Body P Island Wildlife Refuge on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and a peregrine falcon flew flew by, and we just oohed and awed about that. So uh, I also didn't know what an artist he was. He, he was very good at pen and ink drawing. And there's a picture in my book of me standing next to him in his office, and on his office wall behind him, is a pen and ink drawing that he did on the rattlesnakes of the United States. And it's really, really nice. And uh, I have a copy of that. As a matter of fact, I think uh, Bob Ashley at the Chihuahuan Desert Museum, Ch- Chiricahuan Desert Museum, has that copied. I think he has those prints for sale. And they're beautiful. So anyway. Uh, yeah, so you learned a lot about kind of, you know, build in building this personal relationship. And and do you think it was uh, the letter writing itself is one of the things that made you guys close? Was it more your experiences in the field? Um, what is it that kind of drew you to to have this uh, personal relationship that went beyond just the snake hunting and went to other interests, whether it be birding or you talk about you know, your families and, you know, connections there. Mm-hmm. So what, what was it about the two of you that, that, that just kind of led to that close relationship? Well, when I first met him at Sandy Hill Pavilion on the Okatee Club, I, I just had a good optimistic feeling about the man. He, he just impressed me as a, a genuine caring person who loved the environment, loved all of wildlife. And uh, I think he may be, had an empathy with me as well. And we just kind of hit it off. And then, and then when we started corresponding, I just felt like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really learning about this, this man, there's a lot more to him. And then uh, he started sending me uh, foreign stamps because I told him I was a stamp collector. And uh, he, uh, he said, well, I looked through my correspondence and he, he would send me stamps from time to time. And, and it's too bad we live so far apart. I mean, we live probably close to 400 miles apart. And back in those days, uh, you just couldn't uh, drop what you're doing and make visits all the time. But the, the few times we were in the field were special. And uh, I, I'm glad we uh, continued to write and uh, I'm so glad I saved those letters. Yeah, well, they definitely uh, 
made a uh, made a great book, and and I really encourage everybody to to purchase a copy of this and and read about it. It's an important part of. Uh, you know, our history and herpetology and snake biology and, uh, you know, was certainly one of the prominent figures and a real kind of lens into like a, a depth that you, you normally wouldn't get from from most of the books. So uh, how would uh, if people were interested in purchasing the book um, or just learning more about it, um, how would they go about doing that? What's the best way? Well, uh, I would encourage the uh, audience to uh Reach me through my uh, email. It's critterking44 at yahoo.com. That's uh, critterking with a C, one word, critterking44 at yahoo.com. And I have a number of copies, and uh, I, I will be glad to uh, sell them. At their, I think they're $25, and I mail them to people and autograph them. Oh, that's great. So if you want to get an autographed copy, they can email you and we will put your email address in the show notes. Um, are there other places, uh, you know, could they go, uh, you know, obviously they wouldn't be signed. Uh, right. So I would encourage everybody to email you, but are there other places that they could purchase the book, uh, say, you know, through the publisher, through Eco yes. or other places? And, yeah. and where are those? Uh, ecouniverse.com. That's the publisher. And the book is on Amazon. Great. So there's lots of ways you can get this. And if you want to get an autographed copy, um, just uh, email Gary and you, and you can find his email address in the show notes. So, uh, so the book, I guess one last thing I want to talk about with the book, uh, and then I'll, if, if there's anything we missed that you want to touch on, is that the book you know, we've talked a lot about Carl and we've talked about a lot about you and that interaction, but there's just a lot of characters in this book. Uh, and, and some of, some of who I've known, um, you know, David Jones, for example, um, or Bob Zeppelordi. Uh, and so it's quite a cast of characters <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've described some of them as well. And I almost, I seem to recall in the book that David was it. Did he get shot? Is that what it was? Yes. He was Tell us tell us that oh, yeah. story if you don't mind. Not at all. <laughs> I I had been up visiting my sister in Massachusetts over the Christmas holidays in December of 1965. And when I got back, David Jones's mother called me on the phone and she said David has been shot. And I said, "What?" And she said, "Yeah, he and his two friends and I knew them, their twin uh, brothers, Connie and Jerry Vidal, were out drinking and carousing around. The three of them were uh, in David's International Scout. Uh, and they had, I think, one of the brothers, or maybe the brothers had been deer hunting. They had a 30-30 or a 30-odd-6 high-powered rifle, and they had been drinking, and one thing led to another. The one grabbed the gun or was trying to grab it from somebody. And it, David got shot right in the abdomen. And the bullet oh. went clear through. They said the doctor in the operating room could see the operating table through David's body. 
Wow. The hole was that big. And they thought it would be a year before he could, uh, you know, rehab. Three months later, he and I were down at Okatee. <laughs> yeah. Tough man. I, uh, and, and I there's, only a, knew- there's a chapter in the book called The Two Navels of David Jones. And, and the, the funny thing about that is David told me, he says, Gary, he says, uh, I used to tell my girlfriends I was born with two navels. <laughs> yeah he was a character yeah yeah i was i was lucky to meet david he came out he's very interested in indigo snakes as you yes. probably know and he used to go out in the field with some of my staff and yeah and with me and then um i had the opportunity to visit him because he later in life lived in that low country south carolina region yes. Yes. And so um, I would go to his property there uh, yes. and visit with him on occasion. So I went there a guy. couple of times. And as a matter of fact, uh, Chris, it was because of David Jones that I learned of the Orient Society. Oh, good. He gave me a, a little background on that. And then I joined the Orient Society. And I was impressed with his property that he had. He was uh, planting longleaf pine and he had a nice piece of property. Yep. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was great. So, okay, great. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and talking about the book again. Uh, I encourage everybody to purchase it before we leave the book and begin to wrap up here. Is there anything about the book that we, maybe we didn't touch on that you wanted to, you wanted to cover? Well, I, I couldn't really talk about every person that I met down at Okatee, but I tried to focus on the ones I spent the most time with. And of course, David Jones was with me when we met Carl Caulfield on that uh, April morning in 1965. And that same day, I met Manny Rubio and Jimmy Bukowski, Alec Knight, Bob Zappalorty, and Ziggy Lazinski. And in subsequent uh, travels down there, I met Carl Alamonte, um, Kevin Bowler, and Saul Fries, and... Uh, met other people. I met uh, photographer Roy Penny one time. He was a pretty renowned uh, photographer back in the 40s and 50s and a good friend of Carl Caulfield's. So uh, I, I, I like the way uh, Chuck Smith laid out the book with, with the old pictures and new pictures and the editing that Dr. Gordy Shewitt did I would I would type out on my little iPad my comments on Caulfield's letters and then I'd shoot it over to Gordy's computer and he would edit it. So pretty much the three of us wrote that book. It's it's as much their book as, as mine. I could not have done that book without the help of Gordy Shewitt and Chuck Smith and of course Bob Ashley wanting to publish it. So I'm grateful for all of them. Yeah, they're all great people and done incredible things for for snakes across the board. So, well, before we wrap up here, I like to have all of my guests tell one of their best snake stories. So we've already heard some great stories from you, but I I would like you to dig deep and uh, tell us another one. Well, I have two in mind. I'll I'll briefly tell you one because it's actually in my book and it was a First time I went in the field with Carl Caulfield at Okatee, and David Jones was with me. And it was a cool day uh, down on the Okatee property. It was probably just 60 degrees and overcast. And Caulfield said, all right, boys, I'm going to show you this field. I've found diamondback rattlesnakes here before. So David and Carl started walking ahead of me. 
And David saw this mound and he reached his snake hook in there and nothing. He said, Gary, the snake, the diamondback that's in there probably has a has his own doorman. It was such a nice looking mound. So they continued on up ahead of me. And I I went ahead and stuck my hook in there. Nothing. I stuck way in and I could feel something. I pulled out a four and a half foot diamondback rattlesnake. He was opaque. I just picked him up and picked them up and I said, hey, look, guys, and they turned around. Their eyes were as big as a horned owl. So anyway, that was a thrill to catch my life diamondback rattlesnake in the presence of Carl Caulfield. So uh, my, what a story. My second story, I was on an eco tour in Ecuador with a group of birders. And this was mainly a birding tour. And we were along the Napo River, which is a tributary of the Amazon. And we took this boat from our lodge across the Napo into this uh, kind of a dry jungle. It wasn't uh, uh, really, really wet, but we all had on rubber boots. And there's about nine of us. And I think I was third in line. And we're walking along this trail. And all of a sudden I glance down and I see the the last half of a huge, uh, uh, not a, it's not an indigo snake, it's a muserana, which is a snake eating snake like an indigo snake. So I reached down to try to pull them out and everybody in the group, they, they were dazzled. Their eyes got big, too. And I couldn't pull the snake out. And finally, I got the snake pulled out. And here it had consumed a six, was in the act of consuming a six-foot uh, rainbow boa. And the oh, rain, my. And the rainbow boa had a bolus in them that was probably an agouti or a possum. And I, I got the indigo off of the, the the rainbow bow is dead. And I held up the, in, uh, not the indigo, the, the muscerana. And he was seven and a half feet long if he was an inch. And, uh, and the dead rainbow boa was six feet long. And my, my friends took pictures. And that was the highlight of that little trek through the Amazon. Wow. That's a uh, once in a lifetime experience right oh, there. Absolutely. That's great. Absolutely. Well, uh, well, thank you, Gary. I really uh, enjoyed this. It was very informative, and I think a lot of our listeners will, will find it uh, find it interesting too. So, thanks again for for joining us. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Enjoy. And I just want to thank everybody out there in the audience and tell you to remember: snakes are animals too, and it's a privilege to see one in the wild.